0: Then blended to perfection in cold press to create the epic hard lemonade you know and love. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is Prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts. So, you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast, another busy week in the National Football League. And we're going to go over quite a few topics, including we'll be joined a little bit later on from the league meetings in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, with Sam Farmer of the Los Angeles Times, good friend of mine. He's been covering the NFL for 100 years like I have, and uh, he'll get us updated on everything that happened in Palm Beach over the three days of the meetings. Uh, But so much to discuss right now with uh, everything going around the NFL. I'm joined by my friend, Paul Burmeister. Um, And Paul, we're going to go over a lot in this podcast. We're gonna hit a few topics and we're gonna hit them fast. We're gonna talk about the pressure slash opportunity on Tua Tonga Valoa. We're gonna talk about the state of the Browns. Now that Deshaun Watson has been introduced, we're gonna talk about the new overtime rule um, that was just passed at the league meetings. And I also really want to get into a little bit into Malik Willis, because when I talk to people and I'm not a big, I'm not a McShay Kuiper, you know, guy, but I, in terms of studying this, but there's a lot of people in the league talking about Malik Willis. I know that you and Chris Sims, have been talking a lot about the college quarterbacks. So I wanna get a few of your thoughts on the quarterbacks, but specifically on Malik Willis, who I think now is very likely to be picked in the first half of the first round. So let's get into that and good afternoon, Paul. And Paul, I asked you when we were uh, going back and forth a little bit, did you see that UConn North Carolina State basketball game, the women's game, all the people who say, Oh, man, women's basketball stinks. I mean, I don't want to watch it. That is the best sports event I've seen since the Super Bowl, and I know you missed it. I wanted to clap you across the head there because this is now—they're your UConn Huskies. You're—you're you're a nutmeg theater now. But hey, that was—that was a heck of a game. Hi, Paul.
0: Hey, Peter, and you know what? I, I not only am remiss for not watching it on TV. I should have gone. Uh, Bridgeport Arena is literally about twelve minutes from my house, so wow. I am I am doubly in the wrong, double bogey here on the first hole, Peter. Before we've even started, so I, I'll try to work myself out for the next uh, half.
1: Hour. <laughs> well, you know, you could always fly to Minneapolis and see UConn Stanford Friday, but that's a whole other matter. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. So the first topic the overtime change, the rules change that was made at the NFL meetings just a couple of hours ago as we record this, I've got some inside information about what exactly happened. So Paul, let me just go over that first. And then I want to hear your reaction to what was done and what wasn't done. Okay. So basically going into this meeting, uh, I'd say the majority of the competition committee felt that they wanted to uh, pass a rule for every game, regular season and postseason, so that every game would have the rule that said two teams, both teams should touch the ball uh, in overtime. But that didn't happen. Uh, and I'll tell you why it didn't happen. As the discussion was going on, And as they did a straw poll around the room about how many people were in support of the very simple rules change, which is both teams touch the ball in overtime at least once. And when the second team touches the ball on first down, it's now sudden death. So if the first team scores, then uh, the, the, the second team gets the ball and scores. And, and if the first team scored a touchdown and to kicked the PAT, the second team can score a touchdown and kick a PAT. And then the game just goes on. The first team will get the ball back. And if they score anything at that point, the game is over. And the one wrinkle in this that people should know is on the second possession, if the period is going to expire, if there were two long possessions, if the period is going to expire, they will go into the next period, just like they would between first quarter and second quarter. So in other words, they won't stop and you know, and, 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 and start again and kick off again, but it'll just be like, uh, you know, you'd change sides of the field and you would keep going on that drive. So I think what ended up happening is when they took a straw poll about the overtime change in all games. They took a straw poll and I was told that maybe 16 or 18 teams were in favor of it. But that meant that they were going to have to twist six or eight arms because you need 24 of 32 teams to vote for um, a rules change for it to become law. So they said, look, we're we're not going to be able today to to twist arms on six or eight teams and get them to change. So what they decided to do then is they said, "Okay, let's just talk about the postseason, where there have been 12 overtime games in the postseason. And the team that possessed the ball first has won 10 of them, including seven on the first possession. So in five of the 12 playoff games, It was a one possession game that this team that lost the toss uh, never got a chance to to take the ball. So, the rule, that rule, overtime only passed 29 to three. And I think now, I think the competition committee will continue to bring this back in the future. But uh, as for now, I think they felt we at least need to get this uh, passed for the postseason. Paul, your reaction. Uh, For someone
0: like me, Peter, I I think it's best case scenario. You and I have talked about this a number of times here in the offseason, especially since that game at overhead between the Bills and Chiefs. I was definitely in the minority. I was not bothered by the fact or bothered by the old rule. I guess it's now old. So the fact that it stays the way it was in the regular season, at least for one more year, doesn't bother me a bit. And even though I wasn't one of these people who said, gosh, this has to change, this is something that is really wrong, I can certainly get in touch with the feeling that I had just as a fan watching that game at Arrowhead and thinking, I don't get to watch Josh Allen after the way he played uh, for most of that game. And then at the end of the game, I don't get to see him in in overtime. I did feel a little cheated there. So it wasn't my number one topic, but I can certainly see why it's better for overtime, uh, why I don't have to feel that way. Nobody else has to feel that way again, like
1: we did in January, thinking about the Bills. Paul, there's one other wrinkle to this. And as I spoke with competition committee chair, Rich McKay, oh, a little over an hour ago, um, you know, I said to him, I said, look, the unintended consequence perhaps of this rule that I am fascinated by is I think it's very likely that the team that wins the toss is now going to defer. Because now when you get the ball second, you're gonna know exactly what you need to do. You either need to get um, you know, a touchdown to win if the first team either didn't, or if the first team got a field goal or didn't score, um, or, you know, or if they didn't score, you only need a field goal. Or if the first team got a touchdown in the PAT, you may choose if the first team has a powerful, uh, Patrick Mahomes or Josh Allen type quarterback, you may choose if you score a touchdown on your drive you may choose to go for two and end the game right there. So there's a lot of that. And and Rich McKay had a great point. He goes, listen, coaches aren't necessarily going to love this because it adds another decision that they can get killed for. But he said, I think the fans are going to love it because the fans are going to be able to debate the strategy of of another coaching decision.
0: When I first heard you say that, Peter, and actually when I first read about it a little while ago, I was, I, I was like, man, nine times out of 10, whoever wins the, the toss is going to choose to take the ball first. And I think I changed that to 10 times out of 10. Why yeah. wouldn't you want to take the ball first? It really right. puts you in the position of power. Um, so I, I'm sorry. Why wouldn't you kick it off? Why wouldn't yes, you kick yeah, the ball yeah. off is what I meant. Yeah, because then if you do get the ball back, you can can play it in a completely different way with your offensive strategy. So I think nearly every single time we will see the team that wins a toss decide to kick it off.
1: Paul, let's move on to a topic that I'm totally fascinated about. And that is the new way that teams are being built. And I think we've seen it in huge ways in the last 10 days to two weeks when Deshaun Watson gets traded, even with all his baggage, for six draft choices, including three ones. Tyreek Hill gets traded for five draft choices. Uh, Devontae Adams gets traded for a one and a two. Um, and, And so I really view that life in terms of construction of teams is changing. I had a stat in my column on Monday Uh, this week, where I said, I'll just tell you what the stat is. Picks by Miami in the top 100 of the 2020 draft. Six. Picks by Miami in the top 100 of the 2021 draft. Five. Picks scheduled for Miami in the top 100 of this year's draft. Zero. Mm -hmm. And Miami basically has said, listen, we've done a lot. We've picked a lot of young players in the draft. We've gotten rich uh, you know, on draft choices. Maybe they're not all going to work out, but we've spent a lot of draft capital. Now we want proven players. We want to do it the Rams way, which has worked. Give me your view on teams, basically both teams jettisoning these, these players and also teams acquiring Devontae Adams and, and and Tyreek Hill and Deshaun Watson?
0: I think most of this, so you have to look at it through the lens of, of the passing game. And if it's done for a quarterback, if it's done for a real difference maker, a wide receiver, people are pretty forgiving now. when They, they just think about the excitement and the way that team could win now compared to the way they could win or not win, lose more often than not before they made that move. Uh, I, I also want to point out, too, that We talk about the Rams model now, and it's the one we really have, but the Rams got it done and won. So the first couple of times, and it'll happen, where a team goes in big to do it now, gave up a lot of picks, and it didn't work. Let's see how people talk about it then. Right now it's easy to be fired up about it because the one example we have could not have gone any better, whether it was for Vaughn Miller or Matthew Stafford giving up picks for for Ramsey, the cornerback. The Rams have gotten it done. So let's see if somebody else can get it done also. Uh, and when they don't, and it'll happen, this conversation could come back the other way quite a bit.
1: You know, I want to piggyback this topic with another Dolphins topic. So a lot of people call the uh, the 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 huge fans of Tua Tongvaloa Tuanon because anytime you even <laughs> remotely criticize him or, or question him, They come out of the woodwork and saying, "What's wrong with him? He's the greatest quarterback since Marino." But, but be any and he may very well may end up that way. But so I I just have this sort of mental picture of Tua as a quarterback. It may be it may be not totally justified, but I kind of think of Tua as a horizontal thrower of the ball and instead of a vertical thrower of the ball. Now, obviously, he has thrown some deep and, and, and all that, but I did find out from Pro Football Focus that last year, he, he only had 14 completions on balls thrown 20 yards or more past the line of scrimmage. So 5.3% of all of his completions last year were 20 yards or more down the field. You know, and and I wrote that, you know, Mahomes had 36 of them. And and most quarterbacks, you know, are a little bit better and a little bit more eager to throw the ball downfield. If you have Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell, you know, 429 and 437 on either side of the field, I'll tell you one thing, you better air it out a couple of times every Sunday, four or five times maybe. But tell me your thought about whether this is actually a good fit for the offense that Mike McDaniel is going to run.
0: I think it can be, Peter, because if if you look at what uh, Miami did last year, they, they, they found a way to win a lot of games at the end of the year with a really bad running game and an extremely conservative passing game, a good defense and a schedule that was in their favor. Okay, so now you have Jalen Waddell, Tyreek Hill, Mike Kosicki. You've invested more in the offensive line. You've invested more in the running game in terms of the coach you brought in and also with a running back he used to work with. Um, Two thoughts. Number one, with Miami last year, and really even his rookie year, Peter, it was almost like they gave the keys to the car to Tua but said, don't drive at night. Don't drive on the freeway. Both (laughs) hands on the wheels. Like, you're in charge. Be really careful don't screw it up and now he's got 21 starts he has a new head coach he has what I think is the biggest difference maker out wide in Tyreek Hill yeah let him go now and it's crazy how quickly the story turned from positive about Miami to all right Tua no excuse now let's see let's see what you got now but I'm excited for him and I don't think it has to be an over-the-top offense Just took it away from Patrick Mahomes this last year. And really Tyreek Hill was kind of 20 yards back to the line of scrimmage with with a lot of his success, with a lot of catch and run. And Tua can do that. So there are plenty of reasons to to be skeptical about him. But I'm on the other side. I'm really excited to see how he can make it work, even though I don't expect him to become this over-the-top quarterback that he really isn't.
1: You know, the flip side of this trade was – Man, why did Kansas City trade um, Tyreek Hill? And I think I know. I think I have a pretty good idea of it. And let me just run down a few things that was go- things that were going through Kansas City's mind. This was a very 2022 NFL trade, and this is why. Normally. Uh, trades like this until the last couple of years. Uh, As Drew Rosenhaus, the agent for um, uh, Tyreek Hill told me, normally you never see trades that happen like this because a guy like Tyreek Hill uh, until he was absolutely at the end of the line would almost never leave his team. But here's how Kansas City felt. If they paid Tyreek Hill, top of market, which is what he wanted. And I have to tell you, Paul, I was surprised. They came very close. And I can tell you, their final offer on Tuesday morning to Tyreek Hill really surprised him and it surprised Rosenhaus. They stretched a lot more than than they had thought. But Tyreek, I think deep down all along, always wanted to go to Miami. If the money was fairly similar, remember, no state income tax in Florida. So a lot of his money is going to be essentially, uh, you know, significantly uh, less taxed. But there's one other factor in this. I think Kansas City felt like we have a lot of faith and trust in our personnel staff and our scouts, in Andy Reid to recognize what a good receiver is in this offense and Patrick Mahomes to make great receivers out of good receivers, because with him in his offense, uh, speed is fantastic and they want speed, but he's been able to make do with a lot of different kinds of receivers in that offense. So at the end, make no mistake about it, Kansas City in an ideal world wanted to keep Tyreek Hill. And they tried, but there's a certain excitement and a certain thing that's kind of, they're looking forward to seeing what they can do with two picks in the top 60 now, Uh, you know, the 29th pick in the draft, they've got picks 29 and 30, you know, that they're going to take a speed receiver in the first round of this draft with one of those two picks. And the one other thing about this, one other thing that I think is really important. What are the two teams that have lost superstar receivers? Two of the best five receivers in football, Green Bay and Kansas City. Well, Green Bay now coming into this draft has four picks in the top 60. Kansas City going into this draft has four picks in the top 62. So what this means, Paul, is that both of these teams right away now, uh, one month from now, when the, when the draft kicks off, four weeks from, uh, from Thursday, they're going to have the ability to go out and get a really good receiver, maybe two really good receivers in this draft.
0: It's alarming just to think about watching the Chiefs and Packers a couple of months ago, Peter. And if someone would have said to you in in your living room, what do you think Aaron Rodgers would look like without Devontae Adams? What do you think Patrick Mahomes would look like without Tyreek Hill? And now we're facing a season where that's actually going to happen. As far as the draft is concerned, I I think it's a really deep class of wide receivers, uh, not just at the top, but in the late first, second, third rounds. So there are going to be some pretty good options there for both of those teams. The 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 part of this that intrigues me the the most, though, is Kansas City without the most explosive receiver, in the National Football League. I know teams started playing them differently. His role changed, him being Tyreek Hill. But this is like taking a – you take a pitcher who can throw at 100 and say, okay, you can only throw at 96 now. Let's see if you can develop the slider and you know paint around the, around the, the uh, plate like you haven't done. That's what Patrick Mahomes is faced with. I mean, he's without his biggest difference maker. Kelsey's great. I think Juju's a nice fit there. Uh, but his challenge just became a whole lot different Uh, I think even more different than Aaron Rodgers because Devontae wasn't as explosive, didn't, didn't stress a defense the
1: the way that Tyreek Hill does. Paul, I want to move uh, to a decision that was made that I thought should have gotten a lot more attention. When a quarterback that who I think probably has two or three productive years left, Matt Ryan, leaves a team that he has been the main character on for 14 years and goes to the Indianapolis Colts who the, Matt Ryan just dropped into, out of the sky onto their team for a third round draft choice. Um, I think they got extremely lucky. But I want to address this from the Atlanta standpoint. Didn't it seem like this just you, We weren't even thinking of this three weeks ago. right? We hey, Didn't you think three weeks ago that Matt Ryan, yeah, he's going to play two or three more years. He'll ride off into the sunset, get his name in the ring of honor, be a candidate for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Who knows if he'll make it, but he's going to play his whole career with the Falcons. It ended so fast. And I spoke with Arthur Blank, the owner of the Falcons. He told me two interesting things. They were not, he said they were not positive that they were going to go after Deshaun Watson. They had an hour and 15-minute interview with him. And if Watson and if the Texans, if Watson had said, you're my number one team, I want to come here, uh, they would have under, according to Blank, they would have spent a lot more time than researching the 22 women who have the cases against him. He said, we had definitely not made that decision. That was number one. And number two, he said, look, I love Matt Ryan, one of my favorite players we've ever had. Uh, and he went on for two minutes about how great Matt Ryan is and what a great person. He said, but his, his, his salary cap number had become a, a, an anchor uh, to their team. And uh, he mentioned several players who they had lost in free agency. And he said, I understand that this is a startling thing, but we are going to enter 2023 as of now with a projected $110 million under the cap. We've never had that. We need that freedom to be able to build a team. So I kind of understand why Atlanta did what they did. There's a
0: lot of ways it makes sense, Peter. And we've seen this so many times before. I mean, I was just thinking of Peyton Manninger talking about this. It should have ended really well for Peyton uh, with the Colts. But these things happen at that position, even with guys who are wonderful on the field and off it. The part that makes me shake my head, Peter, about what you just said, I don't think any organization could have gone into the Deshaun Watson, let's see if this works kind of thing, unless you are 1,000% in and you know, we're going to make this happen. And we're yeah. going to deal with whatever consequences there are to kind of go halfway and think it was going to be okay. And okay, no, we're not going to do it. I mean, this is the result. The most important player in your franchise history leaves with a bad taste in his mouth. And that's, that's the only yeah. part of what you just said. I'm that is keep, true. I yeah.
1: can tell you, Matt Ryan is the nicest guy in the world. He's polite. Yeah. He says all the right things, but he does have a bitter taste in his mouth. Right. right now. There's no question about it. Okay, Paul. Before we get out of here, I want to ask you, Chris Sims, on his Unbuttoned podcast, um, right here at NBCSports.com. You guys have had a discussion about the top quarterbacks in the draft, and he seemed to be—he uh, seems to like Malik Willis, but not really be in love with him. And I think what I'm hearing around the league is that there's a lot of teams that of all the pro days, they really were impressed with all aspects of Malik Willis. Give me your thought on Willis uh, as a quarterback and whether you have reached any decisions on which one of these guys you like the most. Yeah, I,
0: I kind of treated this, I think it was early last week, Peter, when, when Chris and I, and he also did it with Ahmed Farid. I think he spent both days last week uh, just talking about the quarterbacks, his one through five and running through each one. I treated that as a real get to know you. And then I went back and watched Malik Willis myself after Chris talked about him. He had him as his third quarterback. And I said to Chris after he got done evaluating him, I said, you know, every year I sit here and listen to you and there's always one guy who I can tell there's a real chance you might move him up, that maybe you like him a little bit more than where you have him ranked. I think Malik is that guy for him. I don't know if he bumps him up to two ahead of picket from Pittsburgh, but right now he has him at three. When I watched him, Peter, two things stood out. Uh, number one how well he throws the deep ball and number two what an effective runner he is and how that can translate to the NFL and I want to draw the line between like this isn't just hey he's got a strong arm and he's fast he's a talented deep ball thrower it's different you want the push route down the sideline he's got great touch you want it over the middle of the field with the post he can do that and put it in the right spot you want that 30 yard skinny post he can drive that as well so He has a nuanced, deep passing game, and he's a really effective runner. It's not just that he's fast. Good instincts, good acceleration, and as we saw in the pro day, he is built like a linebacker from the waist down. This is a big, thick kid who could handle some of the punishment that would come. So, like, I think of Josh Allen running eight or ten times a game. I think Malik could do that as well in the NFL. So, the upside with the big, deep arm and also the fact that he can run, I don't think he makes it past 20.
1: Paul, um, a lot more to discuss about the quarterbacks in this draft. I have not gotten into them at all. This is my week, my weekend, where I'm really going to dive into them, watch them a little bit. I'm going to listen to Chris's pod uh, on them and look forward to getting educated for now. Really appreciate you joining me this week. Um, I know you are traveling uh, this week, and so Godspeed on your travels. We right now are going to get into my conversation from the league meetings with Sam Farmer of the Los Angeles Times. So back in the podcast with Sam Farmer, of the LA Times, very good friend of mine, very good writer, and as knowledgeable about the inner workings of the National Football League as anyone. And Sam, this was not the most eventful league meeting as I speak to you. You're in Palm Beach, Florida. We're recording this late on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, not the most eventful league meeting, but tell me what stood out to you uh, over the over the three days of these meetings.
3: Yeah, uh, thanks, Peter. Um no news is good news in the NFL's case Uh, in terms of the state of the game. I think uh, the league is pretty excited about at least statistically the numbers that have come out. Um, And this was the first in-person meeting in a while since the uh, pandemic. So that was sort of a refreshing uh, element to this. So a lot of reacquainting with people and reconnecting with people. Um, Obviously though, the, the ongoing sort of, below the surface uh, issues, um, certainly the tweaking of the Rooney rule um, and, and overtime, which is really overtime uh, is the in vogue topic of the moment because of the uh, Kansas City Buffalo game. Um, so the, the fundamental change really um, to playoff uh, overtime rules was sort of the topic of the day today, all, along with uh, Buffalo moving ahead with the stadium, um, but not a terribly eventful, a seismic type meeting that uh, uh, we get every so often. Uh, but, you know, some, the, the overtime change is significant.
1: Yeah, you know, we talked about it, I talked about it a little bit earlier in the podcast, Sam, but. In essence, what really interested me is that Rich McKay and the competition committee wanted, not desperately, but they wanted the full season. uh, They wanted the full season, regular season and playoffs. Uh, They wanted overtime to be changed. But what ended up happening, I think, is that they knew they couldn't get the votes for that. Uh, There's probably only about 16 to 18 teams that favored that so once that happened they withdrew that and then they just said playoffs only and then it got to 29 to 3 and talking to Rich McKay Sam the one thing that I sense that he thinks is sort of kind of going to be the hidden fun part of this is the strategy involved and I wonder what sense do you get if any it's so early it's only a a few hours old now But do you get much of a sense, it seems to me, that teams that win the toss to start overtime in a playoff game right now might want to defer and might want to get the ball second because then they'll know exactly what they have to do.
3: Yeah, that's very interesting. uh, You know, we certainly see that at the the start of games and now it's it's typical to defer uh, uh, and unusual to take the kickoff at the start of a game. But I I do think it's interesting that this is based on such a small sample size. Um, We're talking 12 games. Now it is compelling that 10 out of the 12 teams that won the coin flip wound up winning the game. But if you go to the regular season statistics, it's dead down the middle, it's 50%. And uh, so obviously a much uh, larger sample size there. So it will be interesting to see. if and and still, you know, we're talking 12 overtime playoff games in 12 years, so they're exceedingly rare. So I don't know if we're going to build a big enough sample size um, to make it compelling to change it for the regular season, sort of like they changed it two years later after last changing the rules in 2010 and then adopting those uh, overtime rules in 2012 for the regular season. So um Yeah, but the strategizing will be very interesting. Um, uh, I've texted with a couple of GMs um, in the interim since the rule passed, and I think people are generally pretty satisfied, but there was sort of a hue and cry in the outside world. I don't think coaches were overly concerned about the overtime rules um, in in the playoffs. Uh, I didn't get that feeling just talking to Right. The Pete Carroll's and Cliff Kingsbury's. And I, I think until it happens to you. Exactly. Until it happens to you, all politics is local, you know. I mean, until it happens to you, you're not going to really
1: stress about it. I bet Sean McDermott cared. <laughs> yeah, <I think> so. <laughs> so. uh, and, the,
3: and the Chiefs cared certainly in 2018. Yeah, yeah. They cared. Um, you know, they, they cared. Now, and Indianapolis and Philadelphia cared. They submitted the proposal, so.
1: Sam, what did you, one other thing I just want to get your sense of and whether you heard much about it, whether it was discussed, um, you know, this afternoon we heard from, Tuesday afternoon we heard from Steve Bishotti, the owner of the Ravens who doesn't seem very pleased that there's a $230 million totally guaranteed contract given to uh, Deshaun Watson, both, you know, the player who got it and the fact that it was 100% guaranteed. And I made the point uh, in a couple of places this week that Patrick Mahomes' contract is 19% guaranteed. Josh Allen's is 39% guaranteed. Now, no one doubts that Patrick Mahomes is gonna keep playing for that. But for people who don't really understand what that is, there is a certain funding rule that if you sign a player to a full, fully guaranteed contract, you got to have the money in escrow, you have to have, you know, the money that is going to be used to pay that contract in escrow. So it's a it's a very big commitment. And the other thing I think that, you know, just from talking to a couple of people, uh, you know, in the last few days, the other part of it is that, you know, I I just, you know, to fully guarantee a contract of a guy who's, who may be, uh, may not play consistently over, may not play period for all of the five years the contract is for. It just, I think it's surprised some people are on the league. What did did you hear if anything about that?
3: Yeah, thank you Browns.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. As
3: as Bashadi said, as Bashadi said, you know, I didn't think this might, this would be uh, the perfect player to, do that with um it will be interesting to see i think you know it really puts teams like carolina How's carolina supposed to to compete there uh you know yeah. in the in the quarterback derby if we're supposed to guarantee fully guarantee contracts now and and uh, it will be interesting to see what happens next with russell wilson in denver and how they move forward there and and um you know how much of that contract they guarantee, but that's certainly a shocker. And um, we're talking about a franchise that has made its share of missteps with quarterbacks, so it'll be um, it'll be really interesting to see how this unfolds. Uh, and if this is a this is a one-off, which I think a lot of people believe it is, and a mistake, or if um, if this is setting the bar for the next deal, um, I tend to believe the former. At the theater, more than the movies come to life Movie lovers march in and skip the line With digital tickets to the latest movies on the free Fandango app Ready to grab some snacks And head to the best seats in the house for a night of Romance Terror And quality family screen time Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies
1: Um, Anything else, uh, the one one thing that I find interesting, and I'll tell you why I find it interesting and then I want to hear your thoughts. Um, Brian McCarthy, the uh, NFL's vice president of communications, I think that's his title, um, said to reporters uh, in conjunction with the Goodell press conference that locker rooms will be open in uh, 2022 around the NFL, which I had been worried that the league might find some reason to not have them open. I'm thrilled that they are because for everybody who says, oh, I don't care, it's inside baseball, just do the job and shut up. I give them this example. After the Kansas City, San Francisco Super Bowl, I went into the Kansas City locker room and waited, 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 finally spent 15 minutes alone with Andy Reid in his office after the game. He diagrammed the play that broke the game open. Uh, We discussed it for quite a while. Then I took the diagram and I went out to talk to Patrick Mahomes about it and to talk about exactly what happened on that play. And as I say to people, that is one of my favorite columns in recent years, because at five o'clock in the morning on Monday, you had the play of the game diagrammed and discussed by the two guys who made it in essence. But but I, I, that that isn't back padding. It's explaining why open locker rooms matter. Absolutely. And I just wondered, give me your take on why open locker rooms matter?
3: Uh, well, I think that's a great example. People might look at it and say, "Oh, that's just whining reporters who want to get closer to you know get closer to the game or whatever, but it's providing people with an inside look. and and in our society, people want to get closer and closer to the game, and they want unique stories. And, and that was really difficult to do with um, Zoom calls. All Zoom interviews and not being able to build relationships with and trust with players to get this to ferret out this information. And, and uh, you know, these Zoom calls were like kind of like those cooking shows where they give you everybody the same 10 ingredients and they say, now make a souffle. And and then everybody has to uh, use the same material yeah. and, and cook the best dish. And I just think that, that, um, People who've been around the league a long time or uh, think uh, find new ways to tell stories are going to be able to use that to get to better serve the readership and the the fans out there and tell better stories. And it's going to be better for the players and it's going to be better for the media and it's going to be better for the fans. So and I agree that um, once you give up that ground and necessarily we had to give up that ground and not have open locker rooms. It's very tough to regain that, and um, so I'm a little surprised and happily surprised that uh, the league is going right back to open locker rooms, and and uh, and the league recognizes the value in that, uh, in telling its story and allowing players and coaches to tell their stories um, in new and unique and interesting ways um, that just can't be accessed. Via mass Zoom calls, and um, so I think it's great for everybody involved.
1: I love your your uh, kind of your metaphor that you know if you give everybody all the same ingredients, how do you expect a lot of different dishes to be made? And I want to ask you, Sam, can you think of one example from something you got? nosing around a locker room, some conversation you had that you never would have been able to get had you not been present?
3: I mean, it's just, I, I thinking of a specific example, it is um, forging the relationship with people uh, who will tell you, um, you know, I, I remember years ago, um, Jeff Garcia and talking to Jeff Garcia and just in an offhanded conversation, we talked about um, him uh, growing up and, and his life growing up. And I, I found out that when he was a, um, a child, um, his uh, brother, I believe it was his brother drowned uh, when they were on a hiking trip, that's two, just the, the family. And then uh, a couple of years later, I believe it was his sister, his young sister, maybe six years, five, six years old, who fell out of the family, um, a pickup truck and died. So wow. over the course of a couple of years, he had lost a brother and a six sister, both elementary school age. And um, it was born out of a, um, a conversation. We did a much deeper story about that. Um, and this is 25 years ago, but um, it was uh, the, the, the origin of that story was a locker room conversation that led to a walk around the field together. And then this deep um, sort of connection and, and uh, him sharing this information, stuff that I don't think he'd get on a Zoom call. And right. uh, you got to remember, a lot of these players who have been around two or you know a couple of years, I've never even met the people who cover the team on a day-to-day basis. They've only seen their faces in a little box on the computer screen. And again, uh, those relationships and those trusts that are built lead to really good stories and lead to the readers and viewers um, learning much more about these players than they would learn from just what they see on a Sunday afternoon.
1: Sam, I'm going to end with this. I wondered for people who don't go to the league meetings, who have not been to the league meetings, tell me what a day at the league meetings is like for you. Uh,
3: it is uh, moments of excitement <laughs> <laughs> punctuated by hours and hours of waiting. No, uh, <laughs> uh,
1: uh,
3: uh there are a lot of look, they're at beautiful resorts. There's no complaints here. Um, these things are held at beautiful resorts or conversations with uh, owners, general managers, head coaches, um, league executives. It's uh, this constant uh, clearinghouse of information that you're trading information and bouncing things off people and formulating story ideas and keeping up with the news of the day. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I love the most about league meetings are, are the Monday night party, the commissioner's party on Monday night and getting everybody sort of letting, relaxing and uh, in a casual setting, getting to know these people, uh, these coaches, the coaches' families, um, the owners and, um, and trading information and formulating story ideas in a time when people are unclenched. uh, uh, And, you know, there's no time better than uh, March to get people in a relaxed state uh, when they're happy to talk to you because it's much different. The conversations are much different in October and November than they are in March.
1: Agreed. Sam, listen, thanks for joining me. Thanks for uh, bringing everybody a good view of fairly uneventful, but always interesting league meetings. I appreciate you joining me.
3: Thank you, Peter. You're missed and uh, uh, thank you for your friendship over the years.
1: My thanks to Sam Farmer and to Paul Burmeister. Paul is an invaluable help to me on this podcast. Much, much appreciated. And I don't know what we're going to do on the podcast next week, but whatever it is, the mystique I'm sure is going to drive you nuts over the next few days. Thanks a lot for listening to the Peter King podcast and we'll see you next week.